Good morning to each one. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We began our study of this letter last year, and the text we're going to look at this morning has loomed large on the horizon as I have anticipated uh, arriving at it. I thought of how I might put it in Jonathan's lap to deal with it on some Sunday and then realize that wasn't very loving and uh, shouldn't do that. Um, But it has been just sort of there. And for the past five, six, seven months, however long we've been in this epistle, I've known it's coming, it's coming. It's coming. And some of you have actually said to me you've been looking forward to it. Actually, I can only think of one person who said to me they've been looking forward to it. But I'm taking that as my inspiration this day. As we turn to God's word and as we seek to be faithful with it in our handling of it, our understanding of it, and certainly in our application of it. So follow along as I read 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. But if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So here we go. Um, Here's a safe place to start. Last weekend, I was in Calgary and uh, Alberta preaching at a conference. And on, uh, on Saturday morning, early, maybe it was 7 o'clock, 7.30, I made a coffee run to a coffee shop that shall remain nameless in downtown Calgary. And I got my coffee and I was enjoying it and just looking at the cold outside. It's about minus 15, minus 20, the kind of cold that just takes your breath away. And I uh, had my Bible with me and opened it up, and I was reading these verses, and I had a 
pad of paper and a pen and just jotting down some things, some thoughts, some ideas. And there were a few people, obviously those working in the cafe and others already there that early, having their coffee. And as I looked around, I thought to myself, boy, I wonder what these, would pe these people would think about what I'm reading right now. I wonder what they would think about what I'm writing down right now. And I think I'm convinced that Festus's reaction to Paul in all likelihood captures well what they would have thought of what I was writing on that paper last Saturday. Festus declared to Paul, Acts 26, 24, you are out of your mind. <laughs> you are out of your mind. I don't doubt for a moment, unless some of those other people had been believers, that if I had shared with them what I was reading and learning and discovering and enjoying and jotting down and told them, yeah, next Sunday I'm going to preach on this, they would have said, you are out of your mind. In a day in which gender is defined as a social construct, in a day in which patriarchy is extensively blamed for just about every social ill under the sun. And in a day in which masculinity is increasingly vilified as a deadly toxin to be avoided at all costs, most people would probably conclude that I was out of my mind for believing what I am about to say publicly uh, this morning. I am going to try to declare and unpack Paul's thinking in these verses. And I know that I do it at the risk of being labeled archaic, uh, bigoted, chauvinistic, patriarchal, narrow-minded, and brainwashed. But as I said earlier, here we go. Seeking to be faithful with the Word of God in understanding it, and certainly in applying it. So here's how we're going to proceed. I hope simple. You know, again, I like, I like that sort of anal analogy of when you, you go into your closet at home, you organize your closet, you have hangers, right? And you hang a piece, a garment on this one, a garment on this one, a garment on this one, and you keep it all organized, right? So 10 hangers I'm going to supply you with today. And five of these hangers are basically my summation of Paul's teaching in these verses. And then the other five hangers, five reasons why I think these verses are very timely. As we read it, the text, you may have thought to yourself, well, it isn't very relevant. I'm going to give you five reasons why I think it's very relevant, very timely, and very applicable. So that's how we're going to proceed. And by God's grace, we'll make sense of the text and this will be for our good and his glory. So let me unpack it in five statements. What Paul is saying in these verses, what it is he is seeking to convey. Statement number one, here it is. Headship is God's design. It's right there in verse three. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Did you catch them? Three. Three headships identified in these verses. The first, 
Christ is the head of every man. The second, the husband is the head of his wife. And the third, God is the head of Christ. The order is significant because it is not what we would have expected. If we had written this, undoubtedly we would have said that God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of every man and every husband is the head of his wife. That's not Paul's order. I think it's extremely significant. Why? Simply this. The first and the third are indisputable. No one disputes this. This is not for debate. The head of every man is Christ. I get it. And the head of Christ is God. No problem. But the second is the subject of debate. And so I'm convinced Paul sandwiches it between the first and the third to convey to us at the outset that it too is beyond dispute. This is headship. Man came from God through Christ. Woman came through, from God through Christ through man. That is headship. And it is God's design. Here's the second truth statement we want to be clear on. Headship is for God's glory. Let's begin in verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, Paul says there, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. So there is interdependency. There is equality. For as woman was made from man, going all the way back to the creation narrative, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. And so Paul makes it clear that men and women, male and female, are interdependent. They're equal. He's making it very clear, and I trust we're clear on this, that headship has nothing to do with the essence of men. And women. Headship has nothing to do with their essence, but with their roles. Headship is related to activity and function, not being or essence. And so if we actually conclude from what Paul is saying that women are of lesser value than men because of headship, we have completely butchered what Paul is saying. That is not his point. He is not speaking of their essence or their being. He is not speaking of their worth. They are equal. When he refers to headship, he is referring to something very specific. It is their activity and it is their function. Go back with me now as to how this activity and function serves for God's glory. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. He's simply relating what we read back in Genesis 2. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And so it's true, as we go back and we read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we discover that God created man, male and female, Adam and Eve, and he created them both in his image. That's not exactly Paul's point here. 
In 1 Corinthians, he's not going back. He's not going back here and simply regurgitating this biblical truth that we all know, male, female, Adam and Eve, both created in the image of God. No, he is here now describing their function as it relates to that image. So he makes it clear that God created man in his image to honor him. And God created woman in his image to help the man to honor him. Let me repeat that. It's extremely significant. God created man in his own image to honor him, glorify him. And he created woman in his image to help the man to honor God. The husband is the image and glory of God. And when he exercises his role in a God-honoring way, he brings glory to God. When he fulfills his role as he is supposed to do, God gets the glory. The wife is the glory of man. And when she exercises her role in a biblical manner, she honors God by honoring her husband. That's the second truth. Headship is for God's glory. Here's the third truth in these verses we must get. Headship is susceptible to attack. Go all the way back to verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And so I was among you as I was among all of these other churches. And while with you, I delivered the faith to you. I faithfully proclaimed it. I passed on to you the traditions, the content of our faith. Look at the first word in verse 3. But the word is telling. Why? It implies there is a problem. It implies that at least a part of these traditions, this teaching, this body of doctrine, the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, which Paul had passed on to the church at Corinth, that some were now bringing that truth into what? Debate. Opening it up for discussion. And so what does he say in verse 16 to further illuminate what he means? If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And so we understand that headship is God's design. We understand that headship is for God's glory. But what is happening in the church at Corinth is this. Some are starting to cast doubt upon this truth. Some are starting to undermine it. Some are starting to be contentious as it relates to this tradition. The fourth truth we must get is this. Headship is symbolized by the head covering. Look at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Down to verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Down to verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you? 
that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. And so headship is symbolized by the head covering. Some of the believers in the church at Corinth are being contentious when it comes to this subject of headship, and they are manifesting their displeasure or dislike for this truth by throwing off, by rejecting, abandoning what was then a culturally embedded expression of headship, the use of the covering. Now, the obvious question is this, what is the covering? There are two possibilities. One, it might be a shawl. And so it might very well be that back in that day, it was common practice, especially for a married woman, as she went about her daily business to wear an object, some, something, a shawl, and uh, wear it over her head, cover it. And what was happening in the church of Corinth was simply this. That some decided that, uh, hey, we're all one in Christ. I no longer need to give any credence to this idea of headship. And I'm going to just dispense with this physical head covering. And when I walk in there on a Sunday morning, I'm going to take it off. And this was creating scandal. The other possibility is this, that it wasn't a physical head covering, an object, but that Paul is actually referring to the woman's hair itself. And perhaps even a particular hairstyle. And so in that culture, there was a particular hairstyle that identified a woman as, as married. And in that culture, it was accepted as indicating, yes, she's married to this man. And it was some sort of external indication or something of headship. But what was happening was some women in that society were doing away. They were throwing off that cultural baggage. And some of these Christian women decided, well, I no longer need to wear my hair like that. I no longer need to go out in public like that. And certainly on a Sunday morning where men and women are equal, I can walk in there and just wear my hair whatever I feel like. And I know other women are wearing it like this. And I know this is kind of culturally accepted. And this is the way in which we indicate marriage. But I don't need to do that in the church. I can do what I want. And so whether it's actual a physical shawl she's throwing off or something to do with her hairstyle that she's rejecting, through her actions, she's being contentious. And it really does become a heart issue because what she is indicating is her rejection of her husband's headship. So which is it? A shawl or a hairstyle? I don't know. I lean towards the hairstyle. I lean towards the hairstyle for three reasons. And here they are simply put. And I say I lean. I'm not convinced of this. But I lean this way for three reasons. The first reason is this. As you read these verses, 2 through 16, Paul never actually mentions a veil. The word head covering is put as a noun, but it's actually a verb in the original, which simply means to hang down. It's all it means. They translate it as a head covering. There is a word in the Greek for veil, which Paul actually employs in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But he never actually uses the word for a veil. He uses this term, which means simply to hang down from the head. The second reason I lean towards the idea that it has something to do with her hairstyle 
is because of what Paul says in verse 6, actually right back in verse 5. If her hair is un- head is uncovered, she's dishonoring her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. Verse 6, for if a, a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. And so Paul, it seems to be more something to do with the way she's wearing her hair, that if she refuses to do this, then there publicly in the worship service and to the culture and society at at large, she is openly rejecting headship and her husband's headship over her. That is absolutely disgraceful. What she's doing is she's basically disregarding her marital status and she's communicating, if I can be so crass, I'm available. That's what she's saying. By throwing off this cultural norm, whatever it is, this is what she's communicating. Well, if she's going to do that, she might as well shave her head. Shave her head, why? Because we all know that's how those caught in adultery, what happens to them. We all know that's how some of the temple prostitutes run around. So if she's going to be so shameless as to do that, well, let her just cut her hair right off and identify with those who are despised within society. The third reason is this, because of what we got in verse 15. If a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So Paul seems to have in mind something in that day. We don't know. We don't live, don't, don't live in that culture. We don't know what it is throughout the, all the centuries. But something peculiar to that country, that culture, that time, that place, which identified this truth of headship, that a woman was married, that a woman recognized her husband as her head, And again, whether it's the hair or it's an actual veil, the issue is the attitude of heart, that she knows this is what is acceptable behavior in the culture. She knows this is what is acceptable behavior in the context of the church, but she is throwing it off. And by throwing it off, she is rejecting it. And by rejecting it, she is expressing the bent of her heart that in actual fact, she is rejecting a truth that exists by God's design and for God's glory, which is headship itself. Every man, Paul says in verse four, who prays or prophesies with his head covered, dishonors his head. First use of head refers to his physical head. Second refers to Christ. Every woman, verse 5, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. The first use of head refers to her physical head. The second refers to her husband. And so her public rejection of her marital status is so disgraceful that it is as if her head were shaved, a condition likely associated with with adultery. Paul takes it a step further in verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I think Paul again is taking us back to the creation narrative. He is reminding us that the covering is a recognition of her husband's headship, but it is also a recognition 
that she has dominion along with her husband over all creation. And as she throws off this symbol of authority, she is throwing off her status, rather her recognition that her husband is her head and she is throwing off her status as a co-ruler of creation. The refusal to use it is a declaration of her rebellion against God's design as symbolized in the presence of the angels themselves. That's the fourth truth. Headship is symbolized by the head covering. And the fifth truth is this. Headship is supported by common sense and church practice. Comes out in verse 13 through 16. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Here we go. Common sense. Does not nature itself teach you? Don't you have this inherent knowledge that if a man wears long hair, that is, if he looks like a woman, it's a disgrace for him. Disgrace to be effeminate as a man. But if a woman has long hair, this symbol of authority, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Common sense. And then he appeals secondly to church practice in verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. In other words, anyone who departs from this tradition that has been passed on, it's apostolic. Anyone who departs from Paul's teaching on headship, departs from apostolic teaching, that is, what is accepted among God's churches, God's people, as truth. There you have it. Headship is God's design. Headship is for God's glory. Headship is susceptible to attack. Headship is symbolized by the head covering. And headship is supported by common sense and church practice. There's the essence of what Paul is teaching in these verses. Five coat hangers to go now. Five reasons why I believe these verses, these truths are important, are timely for us. Here we are, 2019, Glen Rose, Texas. Why these truths are timely. The first is this. We have entered uncharted waters. That's the first reason. Why these five truths are very important. Five truths concerning headship. It is because we have entered uncharted waters. What do I mean by that? The Bible affirms that there is nothing new under the sun. That everything comes around. Everything has its cycle. That is true. But we live in a day. We are embarking on an age in which we are seeing something that no other society has ever seen. We are entering unchartered waters. Radical feminism. I'm not using the word feminism. I have no problem with feminism when we think of first wave feminism. But we're now into third, fourth wave feminism, which can more appropriately be called radical feminism. It rests on a single axiom. Here it is. Apart from biological differences, and even some today are now denying the reality of these biological differences. Apart from biology, men and women are exactly the same. 
gender roles, gender distinctions, gender capacities are all social constructs. They are the result of socialization upbringing. They don't really exist. There is no difference between men and women, male and female. That is the underlying, most basic, fundamental axiom of radical feminism. It aims at a single goal. It wants an egalitarian, unisexual world. It wants to end, and this is all in the news now, all over the place. It wants to end what it describes as patriarchy, which is actually a historical fallacy. It wants to end patriarchy male dominance in society. And to do so, the solution is to overcome all gender distinctions. All right? This is the fountain from which our society is imbibing and drinking today. The gloves are off. Here's what I think of it. It has contributed. It's not the sole factor, but it is a huge factor. It has contributed to the disintegration of the family. It has contributed to the celebration of abortion, not just the use of abortion, the celebration of abortion, the denigration of motherhood, the obliteration of gender distinctions, the promotion of androgyny, the proliferation of sexual promiscuity, and the acceptance of homosexuality. I lay all of those things at the feet of radical feminism. It has been one of, the most one of the most significant contributing factors to what ails and plagues our society today. I think that makes 1 Corinthians 11 kind of relevant. I actually think it makes it very important. And those five truths exceedingly timely. Let me build on it with truth number two, why this is so timely. We need to be reminded daily that we are not of this world. We don't belong here, folks. We're not of this world. The church of Corinth doesn't get that. The church of Corinth is struggling with a plethora of issues. Why? Because they think like the world. They think according to the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of God. Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. But for us, Christ is the wisdom of God for salvation. When we come to Christ, he reorients our thinking. He rewires our thinking on everything. Our values, our dreams, our priorities, our opinions are reordered through him according to his word. Pride is changed to humility. Selfishness is changed to selflessness. Ruling is changed to serving. Glorifying ourselves is changed to glorifying God. And 1 Corinthians 11 is a case in point. We come to Christ. We submit to the wisdom of God's design. We see his goodness in his design. We see his faithfulness in his design. And we as Christians, the people of God, stand radically opposed to the wisdom which is actually foolishness of this world. Oh, these verses are timely. We have entered uncharted waters. We need to remind ourselves daily that we are not of this world. 
Third reason why this is timely. We're called to glorify God. That's our calling. God has imprinted manhood and womanhood on our hearts. He's made us to be different. He made us to act differently, to function differently when we uphold biblical manhood and womanhood. We glorify God. This is crucial. We need to be convinced of it. Biblical manhood. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 11. Biblical manhood and womanhood are essential to the glory of God. And so, husband, here's what we must understand. You are called to glorify God. All right? We all agree on that. You are called to glorify God. Created in his image for his glory. How? As a husband, you are the head of your wife. That's how. Okay, I'm the head of my wife. That means as the head of your wife, you are to lead. You're to stand up and lead. You're to assume responsibility. You're to bear the weight and bear the burden. Leading does not mean you sit around barking orders. Leading does not mean your word is law. Leading does not mean you're the only one who makes decisions. Leading doesn't mean you lord it over her or over your family. Leading means you give yourself for her good. That's what it is to lead. Leading means you give yourself for her benefit and blessing. Oh, you're to lead her to Christ. You're to lead her in the word. You're to lead her in your commitment to the church. You're to lead her in your pursuit of sanctification. You are to lead her by setting an example. You are to lead her in serving and providing and protecting. Wife, you're called to glorify God. You're made in the image of God. Your husband is your head. And so how do you glorify God in whose image you are made? You honor God by honoring your husband. How? Pretty simple. You're to help your husband in what he's doing. That's it. You're to help him in what he's doing. You're to encourage him in what he's doing. You're to build him up in what he's doing. You're to come alongside him in what he is doing. You are as God himself designed it of old. You are to help him in what he has been called to do. You are to help your head by helping him honor his head. And God has designed this for our good and for his glory. You know now why, as I sat in that unnamed coffee shop, I knew what people's response would be to what I was jotting down. You have lost your mind. That seems completely ridiculous in the light of the message with which we are bombarded today. My friends, the response is very objective. Just look at the world. And just look at the mess the world is in. Just look at the broken homes. Just look at the disintegrating family. Just look at the rate of divorce. Look at all that is epidemic within our society. And when they look disparagingly upon us and criticize us, I might actually say you're out of your mind. 
Well, my friend, just look at the facts. Just take a look around at the mess. Now, the farther we have departed from God's design, that which is for our good and for his glory, the deeper we have plunged into social chaos. And the fourth truth is this, why these verses are so timely. We are called to reflect biblical realities in worship. This is what the church at Corinth, some at least in the church of Corinth, were throwing off. Our worship reveals our views on deep realities. What we do here on a Sunday morning, whether you realize it or not, it actually reveals our sense, our understanding of realities. We need to ensure that our worship reflects biblical truths and principles. What we believe about headship ought to be prevalent in worship. In Paul's day, that meant a head covering. The use of the head covering, absolutely essential as far as Paul is concerned. The failure to use the head covering, whatever it was, it communicated to others that the wife was rejecting her husband's headship. She was rejecting deliberately, consciously rejecting God's design. And I suppose that if this head covering, whether it's a veil or a hairstyle, if they were still prevalent today and still communicated the same thing today, then I would exhort you to use it as a matter of fact. I suppose that if I were back in Angola, where Allison and I lived back in the 90s, if I was back in Africa, if I was back in Angola, this text would really come alive for the believers there. Because where we fellowship, where we were a member of the church there, just outside our town, I mean, it was typical, and I could probably check with the Phillips, probably not, not that different in Tanzania, and certainly I, I've seen it in other places in Africa. A, a, a woman, a married woman, how would she dress? She would always use a, a panel, it was called in Portuguese. It was just a little, sort of little garment, a wrap that she would wrap around her and always wear a headscarf, always. If she went out in public, this was the accepted attire and it communicated something to everyone. And so I can imagine sitting back in that little church in Angola, sitting there on a Sunday morning, waiting for the worship service to start and in walks some woman and she's wearing a pair of Levi's jeans and she's thrown off the headscarf. It would have been scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. Why? Because she would have been communicating something to the church. And she would have been communicating something to the community. She would have been visibly and publicly rejecting God's design headship. These things don't carry this weight today. But is it possible that there are still externals that we need to be aware of that do communicate headship. Other ways to express headship convey this reality in worship. We're different. We are different, men and women. We possess different roles. And this ought to be evident when we gather. And I'm not going to give you 101 prescriptions here and then run for the hills. I'm not going to do it. Some of you will want me to. I'm not going to do it because you'll be a step away from legalism. I'm not going to give you my opinion and unpack for you exactly what this would look like. I've been in too many contexts, too many places in which men and women have tried to do this and it simply split the church. All I'm going to do is make four statements without comment. All right? And ask you to consider them. Here we go. Women, sisters, when the church gathers, you should look like women. 
Europe, just you as a woman, should convey this biblical reality of God's design headship. You should look like a woman. All right? You know what number two is going to be, right? Men, when we gather, not just when we gather at any time, we should look like men. What does that, you're, now I know what you're thinking, what does that mean? Can I wear this? Can I use it? Don't go there. You work through this on yourself, by yourself. But when we gather, men should look like men. And women should look like women. Thirdly, married women. You should look like you're honoring your husbands. Whatever that means, you fill in the blank. And married men, you should look like you're leading. You should look like you're leading. These divine realities should be evident, abundantly clear in our corporate gatherings. The difference between men and women are not accidental. They are not social constructs. They are creational and they are fundamental. Those who blur these differences and distinctions undermine God's design. Whatever might happen in this world, and my friends, My imagination isn't even wild enough to predict what's coming in this world and our society. But whatever happens in the world, these differences and distinctions should never, ever be blurred in the church. Rather, they should be accepted and they should be celebrated. Here's the fifth reason why these verses are timely. Simply because we need to look to Christ. We need to look to Christ. Desperately. Hear these texts. Ephesians 1, 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. Ephesians 5, 23. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 1, 17. He is the head of the body, the church. Colossians 2, 9, in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Two distinct emphases equally important in these verses. Firstly, Christ is the head of all things, all rule and authority. This is a reminder of his preeminence and his transcendence. It is a reminder of his supremacy and sovereignty. Secondly, Christ is the head of his body. He's the head of his church. He's the head of his people. The infinite became finite for the sake of his people. Here's what we must grasp. His headship is the only reason we have any hope. His headship, the only reason we have any hope. As our head, he gave himself up to save us. As our head, he gave up himself to beautify us. As our head, he gave up himself to sanctify us. And his headship is selfless, sacrificial, loving, and compassionate. And as we seek to uphold and practice biblical headship as the people of God, we look to Christ. Here it is in the words of an old, old hymn. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. 
From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. That is headship. And we as the people of God must look to Christ. Our heavenly father. Oh, give us wisdom for these things. These are difficult, difficult things. Especially as we look around at the day and age in which we live and the prevailing wisdom of the age and spirit of the age. There are times we feel as though we are swimming against the tide, moving against the crowd. We pray that our great heart's desire might be to know you more, know your will for us, understand your word, and live and abide by it. Help us, we pray. We pray this for our good, recognizing and receiving and embracing and celebrating your good and perfect will and design for us. And We pray, our Father, that it might be for the good of our neighbor and for those around us that as they look on upon our lives and as they see us living for Christ in conformity to your word, that they might indeed catch a glimpse of your glory, the glory of your wisdom glory of your goodness. And this we ask and pray in Christ's most precious name. Amen.